When the mind is still, the floor where I sit is endless space. When the mind is still, the floor where I sit is endless space. So tonight I want to talk about about stillness and calm, tranquility, sometimes it's called. Each morning I come back to Spirit Rock because I'm sleeping off campus. And when I come, which is usually about a quarter to eight or so, I feel like I'm slipping into an ocean of quiet. It's so amazing just as I come through the gate. And I see some of you walking out for your morning visit to the horses or to the traffic maybe, I don't know, but probably the horses. Walking slowly, slowly in the sun, in the silence. And of course there's the turkeys engaging in their elaborate rituals and the blossoms on the trees. It's so exquisite. It's just amazing. And it's all, it feels like it's held in quiet and it's held in this spacious stillness. Today, in my morning reading, I read a little Zen story. And here are a couple of the lines from it. The teacher asked the nun who was studying under the teacher, what was it like nourishing the spiritual embryo? What is it like being pregnant with your spiritual practice? And the answer is from the nun, she says, it was congealed, deep, and solitary. It was congealed, deep, and solitary. It had form, a kind of soft form is what it feels like with the word congealed. It was very deep in her being. It was silent and solitary. It felt so quiet. It felt so like what we're doing here and so filled with potential. And it brought to mind a very early retreat of mine. It might have been just the second or third retreat I sat. was up at the Angela Center in Santa Rosa. And I didn't know much at anything. I mean, like, you know, I just didn't, I was just doing this practice because I loved the idea of doing practice, but I didn't know much about what I was doing. And a bit into the retreat, things got really weird. And I felt sick a lot of the time, kind of nauseous. And I kept figuring out, you know, what's the shortest route to the door out of the hall in case I had to throw up. 
And the ground didn't feel like it was real stable. I wasn't sure if I put my foot down, you know, would it, would the ground really hold me up or would I just somehow fall off into space? It was very strange and not exactly pleasant. And at some point I thought, I think I'm pregnant with the Buddha. (laughs) Which was such a gift. You know, once in a while that mind comes up with a thought that is indeed a gift. And so I spent a lot of the retreat being pregnant with the Buddha and carrying this new life, you know, wondering if I could do it, would I do it successfully? And some of you here, I know, have had images of pregnancy in your practice. And when I think about being pregnant, which many of us have done in this room, Some of you haven't been able to, but you might be able to do this. It's a time of rest and of quiet. It's a time when things move really slowly. Babies don't grow real fast. and They grow at their own rate, not any rate that you would like. And it seems like it's a time of increased stillness. So here, all of us, all of us, all of you, are pregnant with your own freedom, you're pregnant with the Buddha, you're pregnant with your awakening. So the challenge is, can you hold that new life with great care as we move through this process that we're in? Yesterday, in an interview, one of the people who came to see me said I could quote her. And she said, you know, I had to get quiet enough to hear. I had to get quiet enough to hear. And John said in his talk, things have to get still. You know, we absolutely have to get still because we come from this world out there. So if you do walk to the end of the road where the horses are and you go a little bit further, you know what you see, right? It's not good. It's not. Cars zipping by so fast. I mean, there's endless noise and endless speed. And, you know, it's just one thing on top of another. I was thinking as I wrote this about all the movies these days that are so noisy and everything moves so fast. And maybe I'm just getting old. I don't know. But, I mean, I am getting old. But it's just, it's so fast, it feels like I can't follow it. It's too much. It's overwhelming. Not too long ago, about 18 months ago, I guess now, uh, my husband and I moved to Hawaii where we'd had a home for a number of years, but we wanted to live there full time. So we left everything in California, sold the house, and we took the cats and the dog, which I'm told is a real sign that you have actually moved. So there we all were, and, you know, on this island, and there are no freeways on our island, and people seem to, oddly enough, have time very interesting. And the whole pace of life is different. It's very much slowed down. And I found that in that move, I was beginning to, as time went by, see that 
I was able to focus on some of the aspects of my life which I simply hadn't been able to see before because I was moving too fast. I had to slow down so that I could hear. So we all come to these retreats. You've come here to this retreat at Spirit Rock, the both months or just the month of March. Because we are seeking some form of transformation or freedom or liberation. And we've all stepped out of that hurry. You know, you've been away now for some of you, oh my goodness, six weeks. And some of you too. And it's a big chunk of time to be out of that roof, very speedy, very fast routine. So this week, we've begun to talk in here about a set of, you could think of them as aspects of the heart and mind that can be developed. And it's a description of the conditions that are necessary in order to be able to see or to hear or to perceive freedom. And it's a list, you know, it goes along in its linear sequence, you know, suffering and then faith and then delight and then rapture. And now we're up to tranquility as one condition creates the conditions for the other. But I actually think it's also helpful to see it otherwise. And um, one of the things I like to do is I like to cook, you know. And and I have a new favorite cookbook. And my new favorite cookbook, one of the reasons I really like it, is um, the author says that she comes from a family lineage that when they sit down to a good meal, they admire the meal, and then they think, they say, well, you know, if you added this, it would be pretty interesting. Or if you substituted that, that might be kind of interesting too. And, and so she invites those of us who are reading her cookbook to play with her recipes. Because, you know, you don't always have even all the ingredients. So, this, I'm sorry, my thing is loose. So here, we have ingredients. You know, they're like they're out here on the table. And I've talked about suffering. And, and over here, there's rapture and you know, some delight and some tranquility. And, and the, the process is going to vary considerably from person to person. It's not, a, it's not a cookie cutter kind of process. The mixing changes. And what's important is that liberation, in whatever form it takes, is what matters. That's where we are all going. The other night, Gil mentioned that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't very often happen all at once. You know, somebody sits down or something happens and kabum, they are totally awakened and that's the end of it. I'm sure there are times in the middle of a long retreat when you wish that were true, but it doesn't happen very often. And um, more, my own sense is, it comes very gradually, you know, with moments of freedom. And... I would invite you to consider that all of you have had moments of freedom. 
moments when there has been, so far as you could find in the mind, no greed, no hatred, and no delusion. That's one of the simplest um, definitions of the awakened mind. And I like it because it's so available. You can look and go, oh, look at that. I had, didn't last long, but it was there. I wasn't wanting anything. I wasn't reaching for, oh, if I could only have, you know. I wasn't filled with aversion. Oh, if this wasn't happening, everything seemed to be kind of okay. And the mind was clear. How good is that? Wonderful. So that's a moment of freedom. And I think of them as they happen. You know, there's a moment here and there's a moment there. And we begin to discover that freedom, it's a bit like a geography. It's something that you want to kind of look for. So in any given moment, where is the place of freedom? Where is the place where there will be no suffering? I would contend that there is no moment that does not have the possibility of liberation and freedom. None. And there, you know, all of the great spiritual literature is filled with endless stories of many, many, many great beings who have found freedom in very, very difficult circumstances. So we know this can be done. And in order to see it, we have to be quiet enough to perceive it. Ajahn Pasano, who's the abbot of Abhayagiri Monastery, likes to remind us that all of the teachings of the Buddha are instructions for the investigation of your own heart and mind. That's what they're for. They're not to be, you know, swallowed whole or figured out with your head. They're to be used to investigate your own heart and mind. So we really want to investigate this factor of tranquility. And I think I want to say that this factor is also one of the factors of awakening. So it's on that list as well. It's really understood to be necessary in order to wake up. So suffering and faith and delight and rapture support the emergence of tranquility or calm. So we start, as we've been pointing out over and over again, I think it's so important because it's really hard to take it in. We are starting with really what is the sacred nature of our own suffering. To understand that if you are willing to be present with your suffering, this is what can lead you deeply into the path. Very, very early on in my own journey, when I was working with a group of Jungians in the city, I learned this particular saying that comes from the um, Greek, some of the early Greek healing mysteries. And it goes, God sends the wound. God is the wound. God is wounded. And God heals the wound. And I find that so profound because it points us toward how sacred it is 
to go into these deep places of suffering that all of us have. And in fact, it's understood that those of us who are healers and, you know, in these retreats, everybody's therapists and social workers and teachers and all of those kinds of things. You can't be a healer if you don't know your own woundedness. Isn't that interesting? So it's very, very important. And you've all been working with this. You've seen it. You've seen that this mindfulness practice, you know, the cover of Time magazine, right, a few weeks ago with a beautiful blonde beach bunny sitting there in her, in her meditation posture. And somehow they forget to tell you that it's a purification practice, right? That if you, if you do this practice and you come to one of these retreats and all of these wonderful places, you're actually going to have to deal with your stuff. It's a process... The, the, one of the images in the, many of the texts is of untangling. And so then as we do that, as we begin to go into our suffering, then the faith arises and you begin to trust your, the process enough to let yourself go into it. You see that the tangles are beginning to smooth out. You know, and you're, It's like the cord that I work with every time I'm up here to use the mic and I always have to get it all untangled and get it straightened out. But in the end, it begins to be straightened out. And so it is with our own suffering. And we begin to trust the process. And that's, of course, when the delight arises. And, and you go, wow, look at that. It, it got untangled. And, or, you know, or in Gill's story, his, the prisoner who polished the fire hydrant. Oh, look at that fire hydrant. You know, like the beacon in the prison yard. Or... Look at that old fear which I sat with and struggled with and sat with and struggled with until somehow it began to have less power. And several people have come into their interviews so happy in the last few days saying, it works, it works. You know, whatever it is we told you to do, it works, you know, it's great. And so then, you know, in this process, um, one of the things that's conditioned by all of that is is the factor of rapture, which Philip talked about that last night. And that which can um, sometimes is experienced in the body, it's always experienced in the mind. And it can be really exciting and, and even kind of rough and difficult, as Philip said. And, and we can often grab onto it thinking, oh, wow, you know, this must mean something. I must be making progress. And I was thinking today, it's a little like being newly in love. So I imagine pretty much everybody in this room has been newly in love at some time or another, probably several times for most of us. And, you know, there's so much bubble and energy. And and my daughters, so let's see, I've been with my husband 34 years, I think now. So they still talk about the backpacking trip that my two daughters and I took right after I met him. And they say, I said nothing but, Russell, 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 Russell. For the whole week, I was probably unbearable, right? But I was just so filled with this excitement about this amazing man that I had just met. He's still amazing, but I don't get quite so. Uh, <laughs> but I still talk about him in Dharma talks, so I guess that's pretty good. Huh? Mm. So the image in the suttas is... Um, is an image that likens your mind and heart to an elephant. 
and you take the elephant for a bath. So you can imagine, you know, your hot, dusty mind comes to the pool with delight, and you know how elephants bathe, you know, they splash around and they suck up a whole lot of water in their trunk and they spray it around all over their bodies. So if you bring your elephant to a little pond, maybe not a whole lot bigger than the elephant, what's going to happen? You're going to have a mess, right? The water's going to be all over, you're going to get wet while your elephant is having her bath, the silt in the pond is going to get all stirred up, it's going to be kind of a mud hole probably by the time you finish. But if you bring that elephant to a lake, a really big lake, or a river, a nice river, or even better yet, the ocean, and the elephant does all that spraying around and splashing, there's plenty of room. So this is kind of what we're wanting to do, to create that kind of space so that when the rapture arises, there's room for it. And then it isn't so jarring. It settles down and it isn't, uh, it isn't as rough and as difficult. I was thinking again as in my early practice, I could get so excited when something happened. thought I saw something or something interesting happened in my practice. And, and I would get, I was just like that elephant. I would just splash around and get excited and have to tell the teacher. And, oh my goodness, this is so exciting. And it would derail me on occasion, sometimes for quite a period of time. And, you know, I don't know how many times my teacher would say to me, you know, you just have to notice it and name it and kind of let it be in a bigger container so that um, there isn't so much disruption. Just be mindful. So for many of us, you know, at the beginning of our practice when rapture comes up and all of the excitement, it can be too much. And the experience is really great and our capacity to hold it is small. But then later, the excitement dies down. We begin to understand the nature of the process. The container is bigger. And the whole process becomes much more peaceful and tranquil. And it begins to create the conditions that out of which then deeper concentration and insight and liberation can arise. It's really important to underlight something that Philip said last night, that that all of this, these early steps, you know, the faith and the delight and the rapture, it can create a kind of grasping and we can kind of think, oh, this is really great, I want more of this and, you know, if I sit down again, will I get it again? Will it be just like the last time? So the experience of tranquility is like you come in and you rest under the shade of a tree on a warm day, maybe like today, you know, ah. The shade, doesn't it feel good, you know? So as we, as that calm arises, there you are under the the tree, one of the important things to do is to notice it and to name it. It's a lovely thing to name in your practice. Oh, stillness, stillness. You can notice the stillness. You know, we so often forget Somebody mentioned, you know, how, how we come in here, like into this room, and we notice all the things, and we don't notice the space, right? I mean, walk, 
try it. You can try it next time you walk in this room. Just notice the space instead of the things, and you know, the bell and the people and the chairs and the cushions. Notice the space. Well, in the same way, you're instead of noticing all the stuff of the mind, when there's stillness there, you can notice the stillness. And if there's space, you can notice the space. One of the lists for the conditions for tranquility actually sounds a little bit like this person was at Spirit Rock, I think. Because one of the, the first thing on the list, one of the real supporters of calm, is using superior food. <laughs> we should tell the cooks that, I think. You know. And then another one is living in a good climate. We certainly had that today. And the avoidance of violent persons, which we've talked about in here a number of times on this retreat. So, you know, those conditions are provided by the place and the community. They're gifts for your practice, if you will, and um, can support the gratitude and delight that we talked about this morning. And then there's some others that are more yours to work on, maintaining a, a pleasant posture, so not always, you know, sitting in your most... John Wayne, difficult, full lotus posture, you know, and really working at staying balanced and encouraging tranquility and calmness and creating a strong intention, you know, that you are really um, intending to go deeper and deeper into the calm and the quiet. So when we observe this stillness, as we soften and relax into the moment and we allow it to be there, we see that it brings a kind of a a lightness, you know, to the mind and the heart. And that counters sometimes some of the sluggishness that we can have. And it, it creates a kind of, the mind becomes more malleable, a little more workable. And this counters some of the rigidities that pretty much all of us have in our minds. And the mind, you may have noticed by now, it becomes a little bit more manageable. You know, it's not quite so unruly. And you're probably discovering that you're developing some proficiency and skill with your meditation. You kind of know what to do. You know, it's so great. And rather than feeling like, you know, I don't know what to do now. Um, what's what next? And and the stillness also um, seems to support a way in which we become even more committed, more sincere about our practice. It makes the mind and the heart a finer instrument. You know, able to produce much more beautiful music. If you want to use that image. One poet says, be calm, God awaits you at the door. So, so this is all very well, and so how do we further develop, you know, this skill of being um, tranquil? And there's a teaching that has been with me for a number of years that I really like, and I've taught about a number of times, and I find that it helps me to slow down and to be present and to get 
quieter and that it's really, really supportive of calm. It's from the great Thai meditation teacher, Ajahn Bodhidasa. And it's simply these three lines. There is nothing to do. There is nowhere to go. And there is no one to be. And it's one of those teachings that, you know, you can memorize, you'll have it memorized by the time I'm done talking tonight, I'm sure. And you can carry it around, it's kind of like you can put it in your pocket and pull it out whenever you need it at any moment. And my own experience is that I've found it to be useful at just about any stage of practice. So there's nothing to do. You know, that's so true here. There really is very little that you have to do. Do your work meditation, please. Probably a good idea to show up for your interview and the instruction set and the Dharma talk. That will help your practice. We'd like you to do that. But other than that, you're kind of on your own, right? And many of you are creating your own schedules at this point. You sit for a long time, maybe for a sitting and a walking, and then you walk for a long time. Or you're sitting out in the forest, or some people are sitting in their rooms. It's a lot of flexibility. There's nothing that you have to do here. We're so accustomed to doing. We endlessly do. You know? Several years ago, I sat a little period of solo retreat. And the last morning of the retreat, which was, you know, in the home in Hawaii, I had several hours of retreat ahead of me and all of a sudden I found myself leaning out into doing. You know, do, 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 getting going on maybe what I really had to do the next day or the next day. It was shocking to see how quickly that came back, you know, in, into the heart and mind. And even here, we can get caught in, well, what do I do? What should I do next? A student um, who was with our group in Santa Cruz made a practice, uh, which I thought was really interesting. She would go home in the evening after her work day, and she didn't sit down to meditate, because even that was too much doing. And so she decided she would just sit down in a chair in her home and not do for 15 minutes. And she said it was incredibly difficult not to do anything, not in her mind, not with her hands, just to sit there and be. Allowing, resting in that river that's carrying us towards awakening, that small stream that Gil described, you know, so that excitement doesn't derail us. There's nowhere to go. Remember that story of John's, you know? How do I get across? You are already across. All of these teachings that we are investigating in our own heart and mind, these are teachings for you to make real. They are to be realized in your own being. It's not about going through some progression. So poor you, you are here now, and someday 
maybe if you live long enough or have enough lifetimes or whatever, you will get there. That's not really what we're saying. It's more about can you go deeply into this very interesting, wonderful, strange thing that is now. You know, if you really pay attention, it's very strange. And see what's there. Make real what you find. It's not about striving. It's just about being present. Striving, striving is such an enormous impediment to practice. And it has ruined many, many, many retreats. I know it ruined one of mine, for sure. And I learned a lot in hindsight, but it was an extraordinarily unpleasant experience. I was gonna get somewhere. Not a good idea. Not too long ago, I was given a koan to do a little writing on, and I fell in love with it. And it's about... um, three monks who are on a pilgrimage. And, um, you know, they're walking down the road on their pilgrimage and they meet a woman who has a little tea shop. So they go in and they sit down and um, the woman prepares a pot of tea for them and she brings the three cups. So, you know. And so she says to them, Oh, monks, let those of you with miraculous powers drink tea. Well, <laughs> what do you do, right? I mean, if you're in robes, for one thing, you're not even supposed to admit it if you think you have miraculous powers. It's just not one of those things you talk about. And you don't sort of step up and show off at all. And so they just, they were dumbfounded, those monks. They just sat there and kind of looked at each other and didn't know what to do. And so the woman said, <clears throat> watch this decrepit old woman show her own miraculous powers. And then she picked up the cups, poured the tea, and left. That's all. So it's enough, huh? Pouring tea is done with presence and stillness and delight, maybe, is enough. Nothing else. Nothing else, nothing special. It's just here, just here, with whatever is arising. If it's a hindrance, you know, can you simply be present with this hindrance? Be willing for it to stick around for weeks, maybe. You might have a retreat with nothing but fear for the rest of the retreat. Would that be okay? Could you do it? It wouldn't be very fun, I know that. But it's an interesting thing to consider. Can we be present with those things that are so difficult? Or maybe there's grief that's around. Can you sit with grief for as long as it takes for the grief to process through? Can you give up all hope of a better moment? Because that's what we always want, is that better moment. Can I get some better moment? And just rest with this one. Because that's where the peace is. Peace, actually, tranquility, actually, is only now. You can't plan it. 
and you can't go back to where it was before. The only place you can know it is now. So we meet with kindness everything that arises, meeting it in that open, receptive mind, allowing our experience to come toward us, not reaching out to grasp it, not feeling as though we have to rush through it and on to the next thing. Just being with what is. We have such, out there in the world, we have such short attention spans. Not too long ago, a couple of years ago, when my grandsons were a bit younger, I took them over to see our volcano on the big island. Volcanoes are pretty fabulous, right? I mean, how good is that to get to see a volcano if you're a little boy? But you know, these are little boys growing up in a pretty speedy environment. And after they'd kind of looked at the lava for a while and went, wow, then they said, now what? <laughs> now what? You know, what's next? You know, we've, and in that leaning out to what's next, we don't see the wonder. David White says, He says, put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and see the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything is waiting for you. Everything is waiting for you. And then last of all, there's no one to be. Such a relief. You don't have to be anyone. Some of you have been here long enough, you may have forgotten who you are, I don't know, you know. (laughs) But we'll make sure you get your proper car and your zip code and all of that before you leave. It's such a relief to not have to be someone. You don't have to be the doctor or the teacher or the minister or the social worker or the nurse that you usually are. Most of us don't even know that about you. So you don't even have to behave like a doctor or a teacher or a social worker. And you're certainly not living out those roles here. And I don't know about you, but I get really, really tired of the Mary Grace or personality. You know, I've been around it for 72 years now. And it's the same old stuff coming around all the time, you know. And it's so nice to be in a place like this where a lot of the triggers for that stuff aren't here. And so, you know, you get to sort of back away from this personality and you don't have to be that. And then maybe you get to see things in a somewhat new way, in a somewhat different way. There's... No one you have to be here. You don't have to be the you you are at home. And not only that, you don't have to be the best sitter. You don't have to be the slowest walker. You don't have to be the last one in the meditation hall at night. Nor do you have to be the first one in in the morning. No one. You can really work at how invisible, how no one, how little self can you bring to each moment? 
one of the 17th century Christian mystics said, God whose love and joy are present everywhere can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. Cool, huh? He's not coming or she's not coming unless you're not there. So working with these, working with nothing to do and nowhere to go and no one to be, those will support calm and tranquility in your practice while you're here. There's one additional thing that I want to include and because it can be so helpful, especially at times of some if some agitation comes in. And that's the arena of devotional practice. And we don't talk about devotional practice very much here at Spirit Rock. Actually, it's kind of interesting if I think about it, some of us in this room have been around long enough to remember in the early days, in the very early days, before there was a Spirit Rock, long ago, kiddies, before there was a Spirit Rock, and we used to meet in various places. There were no images of the Buddha. There were no flowers. There were no candles. It was just nothing. It was just teachers in the front and people sitting, and that's all we had. And then gradually, 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 things have crept in, and now we have not only the Buddha, but we have Prajnaparamita and we have Avalokiteshvara in the back and another big image of the Buddha and an altar where many of you are placing your concerns and um, we come in. And so I see that devotional practices here, you know, people are bowing, many of you are bowing, many, a whole group of you are here for the chanting every evening to, to make a practice of chanting the Metta Sutta. So all of these are devotional practices that that sometimes when, when the waves are a little big, if we bring them to mind, you can, you know, you can memorize the metta sutta. It's a fabulous thing to do. And then you can say it as an act of devotion. Or you can bow every time when you come in. The Buddha recommends also reflection as a devotional practice that you can actually take the time to reflect on some of the teachings, if there's a teaching that has particularly struck you, or some image from um, the Buddha's life. And he says, when a noble disciple, that's you, all of you noble disciples, contemplates upon the enlightened one, at that time his mind is not enwrapped in lust nor in hatred, nor in delusion. At, the, at such a time, his mind is rightly directed toward the perfect one. And with a rightly directed mind, the noble disciple gains enthusiasm for the goal, enthusiasm for the Dharma, gains the delight derived from the Dharma. In him thus delighted, joy arises to one who is joyful, body and mind become calm. Calmed in body and mind, he feels ease. And if at ease, the mind finds concentration. Such a one is called a noble disciple. So, there you have it. 
Some years ago, I was at a time of considerable transition in my life, and um, I wasn't much of a bower at that time. And I thought, you know, I think I'm going to try it, because I was sort of desperate. And so I started to bow. I do the traditional three bows that you've seen many of us do. One to the Buddha, one to the Dharma, and one to the Sangha. And I decided, since it was a time of letting go, that what I would say with each bow was, I bow and surrender to the Buddha. I bow and surrender to the Dharma. I bow and surrender to the Sangha. And I had a little altar in my home. And I would do this every day as part of my daily practice. But I also did it, sometimes I did it in the middle of the night. If I was up in the night, I would go to the altar and just do the three bows and surrender one more time. Or if I was going by in the middle of the day. So I was bowing and bowing and bowing and surrendering and surrendering and surrendering. It brought great peace of mind. It really helped to calm you know, this agitated, worried, figuring things out kind of mind. But that's it, isn't it? You know, that's always kind of what happens. We get concerned with what's going to happen next, you know. What will happen next? I mean, here we've got two more weeks left. What will happen next, you know? And really the invitation is, can we, all of us, can we... Can we be pregnant with our practice? You know, every person here, can you hold your practice in your being, not knowing what will be born? Not knowing what will be born, not knowing when it will be born, not knowing, as certainly I didn't know when I actually was pregnant, who's coming to visit? Who's coming to spend their lives with me? You know, being willing, every one of us, to wait for as long as it takes and being willing to work with the difficulties of that process as well as the joys so that we're creating a large, safe container, a place of stillness and tranquility, a mind that is spacious, maybe even if you go out tonight, as spacious as that sky, that beautiful vast sky with all of those stars, letting your mind open out into that space. And in that stillness, in that space, then freedom can arise. Moments of freedom, maybe days of freedom, and maybe ultimately a life of freedom. So I want to close with a poem from Rilke. It's about a swan. This, this clumsy living that moves lumbering as if in ropes through what is not done reminds us of the awkward way the swan walks. And to die, which is the letting go of the ground we stand on and cling to every day, is like the swan when he nervously lets himself down into the water, which receives him gaily and which flows joyfully under and after him, wave after wave, while the swan, unmoving and marvelously calm, is pleased to be carried each moment 
more fully grown, more like a king, more like a queen, further and further on. Can we let go? Can we let go into that water to be carried with calm further and further on? So let's sit for just a couple of minutes. Just stay just as you are. So thank you so much for listening. Enjoy your evening of practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.